Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Hi, I'm Scott Postma, president of Kepler Education, your host, and I'm joined by Joffrey Swate, our student advisor. Pleased to be here and pleased to be talking about books. Books, the objects. Books, the objects versus books, the what? Versus books, the floating data pieces. Uh-huh. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to, to contrast directly to book the books, the objects, but you know, we're talking about works of art that have impacted us, yep. right? Books that have impacted us, um, you know, maybe some like top 10 desert island book lists, but I can't help. And, you know, maybe I overemphasized it at, at the beginning, right? As I started talking, but I can't help when I think about books that had an impact on me of thinking of particular editions with a particular binding and a particular cover. Yeah. Like, you know, the Fellowship of the Ring for me will always be blue, you know, and there will be a particular illustration of the fellowship in front of it and no other edition will ever have the same impact on me. Right. So yeah, we're we're coming to this podcast about books, maybe even each of us coming a little bit uh, from a little bit different perspective as we talk about it. So this will be really fun. This will be really interesting yeah. to talk about them because both of us love books. You were a bookseller, yeah. um, which would be my dream job if I could ever make, you know, make a living. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a dream job for as long as it lasted. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So yeah, we were we were talking about uh, books, uh, and I'm going to ask you to share a quote here in a moment. Um, but we were talking about books in in terms of them being, um, you know, ontologically a thing, mm. right? And, and they have their own existence and being and in, in, in something that they uh, that they impact us differently. Different books have, um, and we live in a world today where, uh, a lot of information is being, uh, cast about, or a lot of in- information could be accessed very easily, but that's different than what a book does. Yes. Um, and there's also, we talked about in a previous podcast about the way some books are being censored, right? That we want to remove books. And that always makes me think of Fahrenheit 451 yeah. and, uh, you know, Ray Bradbury's famous, you know, dystopian novel where books are, you know, the firemen are not uh, putting out fires, but they're starting fires, right. right? Burning books. So, yeah, you were you were a bookseller. And, and so we were talking about this idea of books and you shared a quote with me uh, before we got started. Um, uh, from from a novelist, and um, can we talk about that? And maybe that would be a good place for us to launch into this. Yeah, and actually, before I read the quote, you surprised me with the use of the word ontological, and I, I loved that you used it because, you know, we operate uh, in a sphere where we we use the primary definition of ontology. So in most dictionaries, the first definition of ontology is very much to do with being, mm-hmm. right? Right. Just the beingness of the thing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the secondary meaning of ontology is categorization and definition, yeah. right? Which you can see how that comes from being. Um, and In fact, uh, an ontologist uh, is not a philosopher. An ontologist is a librarian. 
Ah, and a certain sort of, of you know, semiotic librarian, sure. I guess. <laughs> but I, so I just love that you used that you used uh, the word ontological, and I think it, it might even be good to think about uh, the connection of those two definitions mm-hmm. and the tension between those two definitions as I read this quote. So this is from a book called "Books: A Memoir." Um, one of the books I've most enjoyed in my life, uh, particularly because um, I read it while I had a bookstore. And uh, the author of the book is uh, Larry McMurtry, who is famous for Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Doves, yeah. Right. Well, he owns or owned, I'm not sure uh, if it's still going on, but he owned an immense used bookshop in Texas. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And he, uh, so this book is about his relationship with books. And uh, in it, he says, today, the site that discourages book people most is to walk into a public library and see computers where books used to be. Wow. In many cases, not even the librarians want books to be there. (laughs) What consumers want now is information and information increasingly comes from computers. That is a preference I can't grasp, much less share, though I'm well aware that computers have many valid uses. Uh, McMurtry, as an aside, was already quite old when he wrote this book around 20, uh, 2008, around there. Um, so I'm well aware that computers have many valid uses. They save lives and they make research in most cases a thing that's almost instantaneous. They do many good things. But they don't really do what books do. And why should they usurp the chief function of a public library, which is to provide readers access to books? Books can accommodate the proximity of computers, but it doesn't seem to work the other way around. Computers now literally drive out books from the place that should, by definition, be books' own home, the library. And, of course, he starts that quote talking about the the public library. And I think that's what he means by library throughout this quote. But uh, I've observed this in personal libraries right like computers are driving books out of the home and my home is not an exception well uh, computers have um in the marketplace and i want to come back to a word that he used in there that i think is really interesting but um books have uh the internet um and computers have driven out book physical bookstores right Right. so today people can buy everything that they want on amazon and there's a tension i think with booksellers or or a, a sort of contention about you know do we you know is there a space for, for used books, uh, used bookstores, that kind of thing, um, and, and public libraries like you're talking about? Right. But that brings me back to this word. He talked about the consumers. This is what consumers want, and which brings us back to the very first thing you said, which is what is a book? Um, you know, so what is a book to a consumer um, you know, is in, in, uh, versus what a book is you know, to somebody else? Yeah. Okay. So, well, I mean, I think the the word consumer is such a, such a charged word, yeah. right? You know, lots of baggage. There. Yes, it is. And, you know, I think people, well, people like us tend to use it pejoratively, right? Because the reason for that is that so many of us in Western civilization define ourselves as consumers, right? Right. We're either laborers or consumers, ideally both, 
Yes. Right. Americans prefer to prefer actually to think of themselves as consumers. So is there a difference then between consumers and consumerism? If we're going to think of the pejorative kind of use of that. And I would define? say that I would say that no, not if not if we're using consumer pejoratively, right? Okay. As a philosophical okay. label, right? Okay. okay. Yeah. Right. Because so, so yeah, if you subscribe to consumerism, you are a consumer, right? right? I mean, there's another way to use the word in which, well, you're consuming that steak. You are a consumer. Right. You buy a t-shirt. You are a consumer. And the store could talk talk about you legitimately as a consumer, but really we're talking about consumerism, right? Yes. How do you define your life? And I think this connects the previous episode where we talked about scole, we talked about leisure, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so uh, a, a man of leisure, a man of God, a full man, right? Uh, he's not going to be defined by the steak he eats or by the t-shirt he puts on, nor even necessarily by the books he reads. All those things will shape him. But he is the master of, of those things, right? right? So, for example, um, you could read Mein Kampf and leave unscathed, right? Right? right. Yeah, yeah. You can, yeah. You can, you can handle it and 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 you know process it without actually embracing it. Yeah. Right. But but he says in that quote that consumers don't really want books; they want information. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, and so that's that's the thing where it really becomes about consumerism, right? right? Because it's strictly about progress and utility. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and books are about more than utility. It is in fact, not part, this is why books are being pushed out. Right. Um, it's not particularly efficient to learn data by reading by books. Reading a book. So if our education is about being efficient recipients for a data dump, books are not the way. Right. And that's why as an aside here, and I don't want to get too far off on this topic, but we have a lot of companies today offering books. You know, they've culled through the books here to the main points of books so that you can consume. Oh, absolutely. This, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's not the same thing as reading a book in the school a fashion. Right. So what you're saying is that uh, we are out there living a Cliff's, Cliff's Notes life. Right. Oh, how sad. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about you know, books as an object, you know, versus books as simply a, um, a resource for consuming data and information. Um, I want to talk about some of the books that have influenced us here in a moment, but yeah. I, I'm wondering if we can unpack this just a little bit further. And is, is there a difference in the product or, or, or what manifests itself in just simply consuming data versus what is a book? What does a book do that's different than just simply consuming data? And what's the manifestation of that in a person's life? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot we can unpack there. And I think I'd want to start uh, answering that question by maybe exploring your use, our use of, of the word object, right? Because I think yeah. that can feel very impersonal. And what we're, we're, what we're talking about, like, you know, here we'll just be super controversial and I'll just say, my wife is an object. Sure. Okay. <laughs> and now I'll unpack it. Now, yes, please unpack that. <laughs> uh, you know, and maybe it just helps to think of grammar, right? right. Uh, Joffrey loves Kimberly, mm -hmm. right? So Kimberly is the object of my love, right? Right. Um, and so, you know, books are, are the same thing. It, it, books are not only physical objects, the fact that they are physical objects, and then the fact that they are a thing, right? right. The author authored them, the author reified them, right? He, they, it can be presented. It's legitimate to say that the thing on your Kindle is a book, right? Why? Because there's a spirit to the book, there's content to the book, right? So um, 
there is an objectivity to the book and we can interact with it so that you can actually love a book. You can't love Wikipedia. Right. So the the idea that even though the author is transferring through symbols printed on paper, the you know, what the content of their mind to our mind, that there's information being processed there, but it's done through a particular object of this book that has a physical binding and has a kind right. of paper and a typeface and, and, and it's a, conversational, it's narrative. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's, that's hard to get to, you know, you can get data inside an, uh, a narrative. You can get data inside a conversation. You can't get a conversation inside data. Right. Right. Yeah. You're just mining actual data to, to right. be consumed. And there's a time for that, like, right? Like McMurtry ad admitted, right? Like it's, you know, it's important and it saves lives that research is a snap Quickly, of the fingers. Yeah. Right, right. Right. But, uh, when we're talking about the human soul, about the formation of man. Now you're getting deep because now you're saying then books have some sort of impact on the human being <gasps> and on their flourishing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's almost like we had a plan for this podcast. Right. Well, and, and that's, that's why I started out with Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. And, and as you're aware, you know, 451 is the Fahrenheit is the temperature at which books burn. Mm. Right? And, and so there's this, I mean, if you haven't read this book, um, this didn't actually make my top 10 list, not because only because there's only 10 I can <laughs> choose from, uh, but fabulous because the whole point in eliminating books is to eliminate the soul of humanity, right? To yes. be able to control the, the actual, you know, the, the people as they be, they become soulless objects. Right. You know, and it's not that it's not that our soul needs books, Right. There could mm -hmm. there, you know, there could be an existence 2000 years from now where, you know, there wouldn't be something we would recognize as a book. But if I desired today to destroy the human soul, I would destroy books. Right. Because that would be the easiest and most accessible. Absolutely. Way to do that yes. Today. By the way, just quick aside, I just can't help but just urge our audience to do the following, uh, because when you said, you know, the temperature at which books burn, just do a Google image search. You know, here we are using computers for good. <laughs> do a Google image search for old covers of Fahrenheit 451. Oh, there are just some great, fabulous sci-fi, you know, covers out there. Wonderful. That's a good use of a computer. Boom, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's... Um, I love talking about books. I love reading books. Um, as I mentioned, I would love to, you know, you, I think a lot of us would love to have a bookstore and be able to, uh, to, to manage that well. Um, but in your lifetime, you've read some books and, and, um, and, and I've read some books and, and there's a lot of books <laughs> that, um, that probably will come to different conclusions about, but we talked about, you know, what, what 10 books would we take? So I, I thought of this because I was thinking of the uh, question that was asked Chesterton, right? Somebody asked him if you could take just one book to a desert Island, you know, you're going to be stranded on a desert Island. You could take just one book with you. What would it be? Fully expecting that somebody was going to say the Bible or something like that. And Chesterton said that he would take, I think it's Thomas's practical guide to shipbuilding. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like, let's would, get off this island. Yeah. <laughs> that would be his end. But um, so thinking about the top 10 books um, that you would suggest to readers, you came at this a little bit different than I did. And I, and I actually like this because you're coming at it about some books that influenced you personally. Yeah. Right? 
And and I'm coming at a little more vanilla. Um, I guess I could put it that way. In terms, vanilla of, is delicious. I love vanilla, vanilla bean too. But <laughs> so let's but, say that this is a vanilla bean list. Vanilla bean list. <laughs> the idea that from a classical educator's perspective, a lot of these books you would expect to show up, but there's a, there's a particular reason. You know, as I kind of try to cull the list, you know, why these 10 books and you had a reason for your 10 books. And so I'd like to maybe talk about those. Maybe we can, we'll just unpack them one at a time and yeah. maybe give your list and then we'll unpack them and we'll do mine or something. I'm curious to see what, uh, what overlap uh, there, yeah, there might be. That's going to be interesting. So what made your top 10 or maybe start with your top number one? Yeah. I mean, there's a, uh, you know, as it happens, I do have a more or less 10 list. <laughs> um, so, you know, Tolkien, so the, the, the two authors who most impacted me in my childhood, uh, and really like shaped the man I am today, mm -hmm. uh, were Tolkien and Lewis. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I grew up in Brazil and, uh, you know, we spoke English in the house, but that was the only place there was English. Um, and my mom deeply loved C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And one of my regrets is, you know, so she died uh, back in 07. Mm. And I just always took for granted that they should be in the landscape. But, you know, she became a Christian when she was an adult. I don't know how she discovered and fell in love with Tolkien and Lewis. I don't know if it happened before she was a Christian or after. And I, and I wish I knew. Right. Um, because really the world I, I live in is middle earth, you know, that's, that's how deeply that, that's, that, that stuff went. Um, and I just, you know, read that because we moved a lot and I, I lived, you know, the, I read books in Portuguese for school, but everything I did, uh, so I was in Brazil, I don't think I mentioned that. Um, but you know, at home I just, I read it books in English and there weren't a lot of them. So, you know, it was the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia, occasionally the space trilogy over and over and over again. You know, in hindsight, what yeah. a great, <laughs> what a great library to be shaped by. Well, you right? know, when I finally read as a, as a young man, I, I finally read Surprised by Joy mm. by, by Lewis is, is, his memoir. And, um, you know, there was of course so much in that, that, that resonated with me, but his experience of you know, that great house yeah. and spending all that time just alone in some nook, you know, just in books that really like that felt like, like my experience. It resonated with yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you know, the, and it, even just the, the way it, it impacted uh, my life as I got a little older. And when we, when I was 12, we moved to North America. When I was 13, we lived in California and our house burnt down the, mm. the great Berkeley fire of 90 or 91. You can, you can Google it. 5,000 homes destroyed, you know, FEMA and the red cross and all that jazz. And, uh, you know, so just a few months after moving to California, uh, we had uh, to move to an apartment out, you know, further, further out from, from Berkeley into Walnut Creek. And we didn't know anybody. And, um, you know, it was just a weird time. And uh, my mother read through the Lord of the Rings wow. during that time. And it's still, like it almost brings a tear in my eye just thinking about just, you know, how, how great that felt. I could imagine. Yeah. So she just, you know, just read it aloud to all the kids. And uh, 
yeah, I still I still think of that often. There are particular scenes like when I was when I was little, I memorized a bunch of speeches from uh, from uh, from the Lord of the Rings, and some of them still stick and uh, still stick in my head a little bit. So Middle Earth almost becomes a sort of uh, static or or you know uh, sort of stability in an in, unstable yes, kind of time. That's right, and especially coming from your mom, and what a yeah, what a treat, yeah, delightful treat there. So. Uh, Tolkien and Lewis, um, are there any particular, uh, I mean, you've mentioned, you know, several and, uh, most of our readers probably be familiar with them, but, uh, would those be at the top of your list or do you have others? That you yeah. Have? I mean, th those are the two authors who, who impacted me the most when I was young. Okay. Right. And, uh, so as I got a little older books like the abolition of man. Yes. Right. Yeah. Really. That made my list by the way. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was sure, <laughs> I was sure that it would, um, yeah, and you know, after that, you know, what I did with my list was sort of uh, thought chronologically. You know, when I was in my early twenties, what hit me? When I was, you know, thirty, what hit me? Nice. And that sort of thing. So when when you think of so your childhood is is largely shaped by Chronicles of Narnia, um, Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings, and um, what adventurous worlds to live in yeah. as a, as a kid. Absolutely. Um, so I, I have to just ask. What did you think of the Peter Jackson films? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was actually pretty pleased with them. If you don't count The Hobbit, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the Hobbit was an atrocity. I would say it was terrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, the part of me wishes the movies had, like a movie had never been made, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it was inevitable. So if you, if you accept that a movie would be made, um, I actually thought that Jackson's rendition was, was pretty good. Um, that, so there is a a Lord of the Rings show coming out soon. Like the, they, they've put together a pilot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's uh, it's set during the Second Age. Okay. And uh, terrible rumors are flying around about it. Uh, it seems like this will be the thing that uh, divorces true Tolkien fans from fans of Tolkien movies. From, from real, yeah, real, <laughs> oh, real alas, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, yeah, I think the Peter Jackson films at least, and I would agree with you on The Hobbit. I uh, I think I watched the very first one and I didn't even finish the others because it was so terrible. Yeah, that's right. But the, you know, but but the Peter Jackson films stayed on their own. So, okay, so as a child, Lewis and Tolkien, Middle Earth and Narnia, uh, and, and, and in some ways very different sorts of fantasy worlds, right? Um, yeah. So what comes next? So, yeah, I guess after that it uh, – it becomes you know, poetry. So, uh, Garden Manley Hopkins and T.S. Eliot in particular shaped me. Very alike poets, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure how serious you're being with that, but no, no, not at all. Um, th there is, there, they are similar people, I think. Now, that's interesting because I would not have put them in the same category as poets at all. I was being very sarcastic, but so they're very similar people. Interesting yeah. talk about that. Well, um, you know, they were both very lonely and um, both men who struggled with having friendships and personal relationships mm -hmm. and both men who wrestled with God. Yes. And uh, so, and, and and who linked that to their creativity, um, in a, in a way, it seems to me that uh, even though you know the stuff that you read in in a public high school from T. S. Eliot is uh, much more raw, right. um, I think Eliot is the one who settled in the most 
to his to his life in Jesus Christ. Uh, but yeah, I believe both men were were uh, devout Christians, and they both produced work for the glory of God. Hopkins uh, Eliot was able, I think, because he was he grew to be a bit more at peace uh, when he finally became a Christian. He spent more of his life not being a Christian. Yeah, he he's really well known, obviously, with you know the Holloman, the 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 Wasteland, and yeah, Proof Rock. Yeah. yeah, so these these really set the stage for this um, Ezra Pound make it new uh, right. kind, of, kind of poetry for the age. But and after then, no, go ahead. Well, just in the in the forties and fifties, suddenly all this work starts to come out. This about building Christian culture, right. and he you know, he has all this wonderful f- philosophical stuff and and practical stuff about building the kingdom of God. That's really very good. Excellent. Um, but yeah, so they both, um, they both had difficulty in relationships. They both had, had, uh, had difficulty in, uh, in man- figuring out what their art and their gift meant for themselves and their own uh, search for glory. Hopkins um, in particular, like he became a Jesuit specifically because he thought that, uh, being a poet was playing to his vanity and he wanted to mortify his vanity, uh, which is actually why like uh, Hopkins uh, published a couple of poems while he was a priest, but uh, it wasn't until Robert Bridges, who was poet laureate at the time, published his work in 1918 that Hopkins impacted the world. So Eliot and Hopkins hit poetry at the same time. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think both of them, I think particularly for Christians, it's interesting to think how they both might've impacted uh, the world, but you know, they were both wildly different. Um, and I think you see a lot of, of Hopkins influence in the poetry that 20 or 30 years after that. So 50 or 60 years after his death, a lot of non-Christians were making work that was inspired by the way Hopkins showed dominion over the English language. Um, so, you know, Eliot's much more stark, sure. um, but, uh, but, you know, both of them just, uh, you know, su- such dominion and such an example, uh, example for Christians, despite the fact that there were oftentimes in their lives when their spirits were shriveled races. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eliot, even, even before he comes out with the four quartets, he has a nervous breakdown at, at one point. Um, Pardon me. Yeah, no worries. So, yeah, so he he has a nervous breakdown at some point, probably, you know, in the struggle with faith comes out Mm -hmm. later on with some of the works that you're talking about that. So, Elliot, you would highly recommend Elliot. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, And really, I mean, like part of it is, I mean, one of the things, the reasons I think I identified with both of them is that they were very solitary. Okay. Right. Um, But uh, both of the both of their lives have an arc. And, you know, I would actually recommend that when, when people are, read all of Eliot's work, right? Um, don't reject the stuff that came before he was a Christian. Oh, yeah. Take it in as part of, you know, man in the 20th century, the crisis of the West. You know, this is, you know, all of us need to deal with the collapse of the West and the, and the, and the collapse of Western thought. Absolutely. And, and, and who better to express it than someone, you know, uh, as a poet who's actually wrestling with these. Yes. Very, and then finds Jesus. And then, fi- yeah, finds, yeah. <laughs> finds Jesus and his life is transformed by that. Um, wonderful. Okay. So Gerald Manley Hopkins, we have T.S. Eliot, of course, Tolkien and Lewis. Who else makes your list? Uh, Augustine's The City of God. Uh, ah. Just 
you know, completely changed the way I looked at the world. Yeah. You know, absolutely. as again, again, my list is more about, you know, impact, like what, what mm-hmm. shaped, what shaped me at certain points in my life. I think this, did this book make your list? Yes. It made my list as well. Can I actually, ask, can I ask why? Yeah. Um, for the exact same reason, it fundamentally changed the way I viewed, um, the whole cosmos, you know, from Genesis going all the way back to Cain establishing the city in, you know, in Genesis where we often read just kind of past that, um, seeing the the whole trajectory of man without God all the way into first John chapter two, you know, that, that we're warned about the world, you know, and the love of the world, the love of the flesh. We, we, we see that, um, unpacked, I think in the city of God, seeing how the city of God interacts with the city of man. Um, I think it is extremely, I'm going to use that word again, apropos for, okay. <laughs> uh, for our modern day when a lot of Christians are equating the American enterprise, the American experiment, or the success of the American, American experiments with, you know, with Christianity in, in the modern world. And this is exactly what had happened to um, Roman Christians right. at the time, right? Yes. And so Augustine's addressing this issue that, whoa, you've got it wrong. For that reason alone, every American Christian should read The Ab- City of God. Absolutely. And Goodness. that's where I'm, yeah, that's where I'm coming from my list at. So yeah, I'm looking forward to talking yeah, about Yeah. And, you know, The City of God uh, kind of kicked off. Uh, you know, I, I, I read the city of God for the first time as an adult and, um, around the same time I had discovered Rene Girard oh, and, okay. you know, sort of just thinking about mimesis and murder and scapegoating. And, uh, you know, so there's the founding myth of Christian civilization, brother killing brother. And so that kind of kicked me off on a whole little tangent that, that shaped a lot of my thinking as well. Jacques Ellul and just, you know, just thought on, uh, on what civilization is. Um, but the, the, the most seminal work on civilization for any Christian has got to be the city of God. I mean, it's just so comprehensive. You wouldn't have to read anything else. Which is, which is one of the reasons that made my list. I mean, if you were going to be stuck with, you know, uh, you know, 10 books, one of the books that, you know, you're going to exercise your thought on so many different ideas um, about civilization from justice to formation, to execution, to, you know, every possible concept uh, Augustine deals with in this little tiny book. It's remarkable. (laughs) And and, and he flanks you so often, you know, it's like you're you're reading about demons and then suddenly you you realize you're actually talking about something else. Right. I I love that. (laughs) He he sets you up all the time. And I was joking, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm a little sarcastic today, but um, this is quite the tome, isn't it? Mm, I mean, yeah. And he, he, so Scott is holding up a copy of The City of God right now, and it is mighty looking. Scott, uh, do you remember that I have a copy of City of God at the office? You have a copy that is, is it in Portuguese or Spanish? It is in Portuguese, yes. yes. But that, so, But what I wanted to hit you with was it's three volumes right, of right. acid-free paper. <laughs> and when we get back to the office, I'm going to whack your copy with, with my three <laughs> volumes and my, <laughs> my edition will win. And, <laughs> but actually your, your, like, I just want to describe to the viewers this book. It is filled uh, with little tabs. He, he doesn't dog ear. I dog ear, I'm afraid, but full of little tabs, marking passages, uh, the spine, which of course is quite thick is 
cracked. It's not cracked. It has those little wrinkle lines that happen when you open, when you open a book all up and down it. And, you know, there's, there are little bends on the front cover and the back cover where this book was clearly dropped carelessly at some point when he forgot himself. <laughs> Basically, and actually the, the edges, the front cover is coming a little free from the binding at a couple of spots uh, because it has been cracked open so often. This is a much loved copy of the city of God. Indeed. Well, and this is one I've used to teach out of and, and to read. And it's a paperback, you know, penguin uh, copy because these are easy to handle. And if you yes. mess them up. A great one to teach from. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I do. I want the audience to understand how, how loved, <laughs> loved this particular is. copy is. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. This, this is a work that fundamentally shaped uh, my understanding really of Christianity. Um, I, I could even go so far as to say that it actually even um, influenced, um, how do I want to word it, a development in, uh, in my eschatology. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, it shaped my eschatology uh, where I came from a different background and, and moved to a different understanding after, you know, reading this book and, and seeing how Augustine treated the scriptures and understanding civilization. Yes. Um, well, you know, our, our approach to eschatology is, you know, so American. Right. Right. Uh, because we were we were many American Christians were inculcated in a certain way of thinking of our faith. So when the 20th century goes a certain way, you know, like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a crisis in eschatology, but, you know, just the perspective, um, the textured perspective uh, that this book offers. Like, I, yeah, I would, I had the same experience. Absolutely. Well, let's continue on because you've got some good books here. Okay. Well, uh, Tom Wolfe was a writer uh, that had a, a huge impact on me. Uh, I don't know if I want to cite any any particular book. Maybe uh, I think it's called Electric Kool-Aid and Mau Mauing the Flat Catchers, if I had to name one. Um, but I feel like I have to make a confession here. You've never read Tom Wolfe? I have several Tom Wolfe copies, and I couldn't even tell you their titles. I've just you know, uh, discovered them in used bookstores <laughs> along the way where I might have um, – you know, recognize the name and, and pick them up because somebody has mentioned them and I haven't got to them yet. So I have to make that confession. I have not read a Tom Wolf novel. Well, he's just a joy to read. Like I was reading a, a review of, of one of his books recently. And uh, so, so he, he wrote a, a book called uh, The Kingdom of Speech recently. So he died a year or two ago. Yeah. Uh, but three or four years ago, he, he, he uh, published The Kingdom of Speech which uh, is marvelous and it, it basically destroys Darwinian, Darwinian theory, wow. but through linguistics. Absolutely fascinating. Interesting. And I was working a lot with languages at the time it came out, so I, it just delighted me. But, you know, the guy who was reviewing this completely disagreed with everything Wolf was saying and yet rated the book well because it's so delightful to read him. And it's true. <laughs> it's just so yeah. delightful to read Tom Wolf. Uh, he is he is snarky and joyful at the same time. It's easy to be snarky, um, but snarky and joyful is difficult to pull off, and he does that. He does it very He's well. always done that. Well, that, that inspires me to want to crack open a copy sooner than later. So the other two books that, uh, that I have, and that will complete my list, um, are, are two books that uh, really affected – my aesthetics. Um, so one is Walking on Water by Madeline Lengel. 
And the other is On Beauty and Being Just, which I know you would love by Elaine Scarry. So Elaine Scarry is a, is a philosopher at some prominent university. I can't remember which one now. Um, and so she starts with Socrates, but the, the whole book is just about how justice is beautiful and a building an, an ethic based on beauty. Interesting. So you've, you, yeah, I think you've yes. often heard me approach, um, approach problems by asking if it's beautiful and trying to encourage other people to do that. Um, that's probably her influence on me. Fabulous. Yeah. And then Can, walking on water. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. So continue. Yeah, walking on water, you know, Madeline Lingle, you know, I actually didn't enjoy either as a child or an adult uh, her science fiction. Never, never ending story? Was no, it, no, no. Was it? Uh, um, she is Wrinkle in Time. Wrinkle, wrinkle in, in Time. time sorry, yes. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, when I was a child, it sparked my imagination, but darkly. Really? Uh, and then when I read it later, um, yeah, it just didn't didn't resonate. Um, so it's I have this weird relationship with the book, but uh, Walking on Water is is her book on being an artist, interesting, and being crea being creative, being creative. And making okay. yeah making good work as an artist, um, and and that book absolutely uh, gave force to my to my thought and my, and my action in in that arena. Well, that's really interesting. So you've you've actually introduced me to a couple, or encouraged me to read some that I already knew, and and uh, nice. a couple that I haven't. So cool. yeah, thanks for that. So, well, um, let's turn. Um, I, I I feel like you know some of the some of the books we've already talked about that are on my list, um, but I feel like some of these are going to be um, fairly familiar uh, to listeners of our podcast or, or many listeners. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I said earlier, it's, it's kind of vanilla, but um, I come at this a little bit differently because I think there are some, some books that have impacted and influenced me personally mm -hmm. um, that didn't make this list um, because I came at this as what books would uh, be meat? Uh, what books would would there be? You know, I, I came at it from the idea of the the being stranded on a desert island, and I want to look at ideas and be able to conceptualize these. You ideas. came at this like a teacher, like a teacher. I did, <laughs> and 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 that is absolutely when I look at this. These are books that I have taught. These are books that I have have read over and over again. So I'm going to jump back uh, to St. Augustine. We talked about the city of God, so I won't mention much about that, but it did indeed shape my understanding of civilization, eschatology, um, and then a couple of others, you know, very familiar. And actually on the 10 books, three of them are Augustine. Mm. Um, and, and because I just, I feel like that you just cannot escape reading the confessions. Right. I, I mean, you just can't, um, if, if you want to understand, I mean, here's a rhetorician, um, that writes really the first autobiography or, you know, as he, as he's writing this in, in terms of, um, a prayer to God and telling the story of his conversion. And, you know, we get the famous saying that thou wakest us to delight in thy praise for thou madest us for thyself and our heart is restless until, until it rests in thee. thee. Yeah. Oh, dude. So, I mean, this, you know, so this is the, you know, this is a book we cannot escape. And I think just meditating on the confessions, reading over and over, he, he tells, I mean, this is Tole Lege. This is, uh, you know, pick up and read. This is 
stealing pears yeah. for the sake of stealing pears, you know, off there. Uh, the confession for me, that's the most important idea in that book. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not because he wanted like to eat them. for the but, sake of sin. Yes. Yeah. So he, you know, really honest there. And then another that um, often doesn't show up or it does show up. Um, in, in some circles, but uh, De Doctrina Christiana or on Christian teaching, Christian doctrine, phenomenal. I've never read it. Really good. Um, he really addresses everything from the, the various ways of approaching scripture. And as you're well aware, we've talked about, I came from a very fundamentalist background that yeah. took a very rigid reading of scripture to the point so wooden that oftentimes it actually was very misleading. Mm. And so Augustine really helped open my eyes to honest biblical interpretation that um, had some Christian imagination uh, in, in the processing of that. And, and for some, somebody hearing that, that might sound a little bit like, what well, you can, you know, just take liberties with the Bible. But, right. Yeah. But not at all. I mean, honest is a, a, a podcast theme suggests itself. Just the, the complexity of, of the idea of the Bible is literature. Yes. I mean, Let's not tackle it now. I'm just saying at some <laughs> point we should do that. There's a very uh, snarky W.H. Auden poem that uh, that describes the sort of person who reads the Bible as literature. And I, we could just unpack that uh, you know, all, all day. I'd love to do that. But let's not get caught up in it. Let's yeah. <laughs> move to the next book. <laughs> he saw the twinkle in my yeah, eye. Yeah, <laughs> he sure did. Uh, yeah. Scott's, Scott like took a deep breath uh, and was approaching the microphone. He's like, no, not no. yet. Yeah, this that, that could be a, a great topic. Well, I'll move. I'll move fairly quickly here, so I don't bore everybody. But um, the next on my list, I'm going to come to Plato's Republic, um, which influenced Augustine. Yes, Plato very much. Um, basically, he said he had to become a Platonist before he could become a Christian. Yeah, you know, because this gave him categories of thought to think about the mind of God. Um, but the Republic of Plato um, is so fascinating on so many levels, and um, it's it's still. I think common reading in a lot of undergrad, um, you know, programs, but I think every high school Christian ought to read this. Every adult ought to read this yes. and read it again and again and again, because he really deals with themes here that unpacks the regimes. You know, it, if you read this, you'll, you'll be able to see what motivates various regimes, what, you know, what different regimes, you know, produce, uh, very enlightening to see what an aristocratic regime looks like versus yes. what a democratic regime. This looks is like. such a seminal work and, uh, frankly, one that is best taken advantage of, uh, best devoured, uh, by Christians. Yeah. You know, I, I think if you don't, if you don't read Plato's Republic in high school, I mean, you know, you, you should read it. Any, any, everyone should, should read it. Um, but if you don't read it in high school, you can consider yourself a victim of tragic circumstance. Absolutely. You know, that really is like, you know, it's, it's a formative sort of, sort of book. You know, you're thinking about the right things at that right time in high school. Especially at the right time. And that's, that's, I think, probably one of the important uh, reasons for reading this book. You know, so, so Plato really gives us the idea that, you know, the isomorphic, the city's isomorphic to the soul, right? The mm. fact is that you can see uh, the soul of humanity by looking, the, the city's the soul writ large. You can see it by yes. by evaluating the city. And that's what he does here. And, um, you know, it, it's so interesting how, I mean, this is, this is, you know, really in effect, this list uh, that you're creating is, 
a, a list to, for human formation, right? It really is quite, it's very seminal. But it's interesting to think how these things all intersect. Like what you just described, if the next thing you think about is Augustine's pears, right? right? I mean, it just, it just it flows in and out and progresses. Um, you know, there, there really is a, a sense in which it, it, it benefits Christians to, to start with the Greeks as they as they build um, their thoughts on what what Christian culture ought ought to be, absolutely. But in, and by reading the Greeks, we we actually uh, what we do is we anticipate much of what the gospel answers. That's right, exactly. You know, um, I've often said that in a democratic modernist culture, um, where people seem they see freedom as the ability to do anything we want without any consequences. And, and because judgment is delayed, it's deferred. Um, they feel like maybe they're getting away with it. It seems like this is the way the world is. Right. Um, and so maybe the gospel then doesn't quite seem like as good news if they don't have a metaphysical capacity. That's right? exactly right. And, and, and it's, it's the seriousness, earnestness and ability that the Greeks approach these problems with right. that sets you up. Because, of course, they still fail. Right. Right. But you get a legitimate, like, this is the best humanity can do. Exactly. This is as far as reason can take us, but they're asking the right questions or asking those perennial human questions, and they get to the end going, well, this is as far as we can go. Right. Right. We don't Absolutely. know. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and so Plato sets you up for the gospel, um, I believe. And then um, another Greek um, – would be obviously Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, obviously was the perfect word. <laughs> uh, um, and if you had to read one work uh, by Aristotle, I would recommend the ethics. Mm. Um, Say the word before ethics. Cause I want to know how you pronounce it. The Nicomachean ethics. Ooh, wow. Is okay. That, I mean, sure. I don't know. I, I say Nicomachean. Nicomachean, Nicomachean. I've heard. Yeah, exactly. I like was just curious. Sh- like Sean from Psych. I've heard it both ways. <laughs> sorry. Uh, Nicomachean ethics. Um, By the way, yeah. Scott said sorry uh, to the audience because we told ourselves before we started this podcast that it was going to be a, a serious academic podcast and it will continue to be. But this episode is so personal. It is. That uh, we can't help but also work in the TV show this, it, that we like, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are sort of seeing into our souls right now. Yeah, this is an opportunity to just kind of hang out as we pick up books and talk about them. Yeah. So I'm going to move pretty quickly here to kind of wrap up uh, as we're you know kind of getting out of time. But I would move well, in. Well, really, the reason Scott's moving quickly and, and continuing with the personal aspects of this is that I uh, – I have a test to administer in half an hour. <laughs> We've got to get there. Yeah. So I, I don't think we can escape um, Dante's Divine Comedy. No. Um, this is the Christian imagination. This is the ability to look at both culture and metaphysically the entire cosmos as as we exist and walk through it. And so much we could unpack there, but I'll leave it. And it's poetry. It is poetry. And I, I have... Um, I have a suggestion for a future episode because I believe that Milton is not on your list. We <sighs> could do, we could go to battle over which is superior. Which epics. Yeah. See, no, I, not which epics. Like okay. specifically G- Milton we could versus go, Dante. Yeah. yeah. That could actually be really interesting. Well, Milton, nor Virgil, nor um, Homer made my list because I have this epic. Um and it was so hard to choose, but I really yeah. feel like I really feel like you cannot 
It, this, if, if you're going to meditate and understand the world, Dante gives you a picture of the medieval cosmos and the way the, the medievals viewed the world, which Lewis gets into in his discarded image yes. and many other works, but that, you know, we have to be selective. I picked these works because you can be introduced to so many different categories of thought and so many different ideas in, in these books and, and have a lot to, to work on. Um, I don't think you can get a good education, especially you can't live in the modern world without reading Machiavelli's The Prince. Now, so so you're, the book you're waving around is not called Machiavelli's The Prince. It has a delightful title. It makes me so happy. <laughs> the Portable Machiavelli. Machiavelli. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know why that delights me so much. Maybe just because, you know, Machiavelli should be convenient and at hand. <laughs> and he should. <laughs> but the Portable Machiavelli. I love it. But yeah, The Prince. Well, yeah, the the prince is formative because this is the modern political schema today. I mean, this this is the way modern politics works. Mm. Um, you know, you got to know how to use cruelty well, how to you know, is it love or fear? You know, we, we've got a lot of concepts here that Machiavelli really introduces the modern world to a new way of doing uh, politics, and I think we've really adopted it. So. Um, not to get too far off, but, you know, a lot of times in these political, politically dysfunctional and tumultuous times, people are very concerned about different conspiracies. Um, yes. Some of them arise because they just don't understand what's going on. But if you read Machiavelli, I think you get an idea of why people fear, you know, some of these things. And, yeah. not, and you don't have to get stuck in conspiracy theories. Anyway, uh, two others. The I'm, I'm just going to call these the, the constitutional arguments, the Federalist and Anti-Federalist Papers. You know, this is so foundational to understanding the America that was formed and the America that, that we live in, the arguments that were being discussed, why uh, the Constitution works the way it does. And I think, I mean, this – the modern American constitution has been the foundation for so many other modern European countries, even in, in the, the recent years of development. And, yeah. and so understanding these arguments and, and political thought, I think this is, you know, every student needs to know that every person does. I would include with that Tocqueville's democracy in America. Um, here's a Frenchman born right after the French revolution, living in the kind of reconstruction period of, you know, a word comes to uh, to my mind when I think of Tocqueville or de Tocqueville is perspicacious. Perspicacious. One is constantly struck by his insight, Sense. you yes. know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of what he predicted about the American democratic experiment. It feels uncanny. Yeah, it does. And then lastly, you mentioned this earlier, um, abolition of man, C.S. Lewis made my list. Um Simply because Lewis's insights are just, um, there's few that can compete with them. Yeah. And you know, the book starts to talking about education, but you know, like if I had to choose one book to read about being a man, this right? would be it. They would. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are so many good books out there uh, that are like, Hey dudes, let's be a man. And, and they're good. Uh, but this, that's the one I would choose. Yes, I, I love this. There's some fabulous lines in here. <laughs> but but Lewis really unpacks um, what a human being is, how a human being works, and what's wrong with a lot of our modern psychology and, yeah. and, and the way the world uh, is going. And and this is a good um, – this is a guide to understanding that hideous strength because this is mm. in lecture form what that hideous strength is in fiction form. So, right. 
Yeah. So we, we went through these pretty quick. Um, and, um, I really enjoyed hearing your list and got some books to read. So I hope our listeners will take yeah. some cues. And- yeah. From both of the, of the lists. Cause I, I definitely feel like I know you a lot better now. You know, I mean, one of the great things to do when you go to a, a new friend's house is to see what their music collection has, to see what their library has. Uh, but then like seeing what you, your what you pulled out, I feel like I know you a lot more now. Gives you, gives you an idea. Yeah. Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for spending the time and uh, look forward to doing this again next week. So long, everybody. Take care. <laughs>